We're talking into a video recorder. I'll say once again, hello. Wonderful to see you all. Wonderful to be here in St. Louis. And to give you this two-part talk entitled, What is Thomism? I'll give you the answer right away so you can leave the room if you're bored after that. And so what is Thomism? There's a, it's a two-part answer, really. We could, we could answer it in two ways. In the broad sense, the answer to what is Thomism is, could be the answer to the question, how to think like our patron, St. Thomas Aquinas, in regards to all human wisdom and divine wisdom. How to think like Thomas Aquinas when it comes to philosophy and theology. <clears throat> how to encounter reality and make sense of it with our intelligence according to the method of St. Thomas Aquinas. That's the the broad answer to the question, what is Thomism? There is a more restricted use of the word Thomism. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that today. But the more restricted use of the word Thomism it concerns the, the school, a particular school of those who follow the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas, especially, historically, members of the Dominican order, the order to which St. Thomas Aquinas belonged. And this this more restricted use of the term involves uh, disputes over very complex and controverted theological questions. So historically, there were a few really big ones. At, at the end, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, just as an important framework. And one in particular is, is it very interesting historically. Uh, so I'll bring that to mind. We'll talk about it briefly, uh, even though it involves very controverted questions as we certainly would not resolve today, but it's good just to know that the, the term Thomas can refer to that as well, and it could refer to those who adhere to a very specific theological school regarding some very complicated theological questions. We're going to concentrate on the other thing, which is that how we, how we think like St. Thomas Aquinas. So Thomism is the method of, of thought, method of human thought with respect to reality, taught to us by St. Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> We can start then by considering the, the life of St. Thomas Aquinas, which I handed out to you here. And we'll go through this now. This will be the most important introduction to what we're going to speak about. So you all know that St. Thomas Aquinas is <clears throat> one of our patrons here in the Institute of Christ the King, especially as concerns studies. St. Thomas Aquinas was born in Italy. He was born in the Rocca Secca, which is in the kingdom of Naples. And if you look carefully at the timeline, you might be astounded. You might think I made a mistake because we said well, he was born in 1225, and in 1230 he began to study at Monte Cassino. So his uncle was the abbot of Monte Cassino at the time. His his family, Saint Thomas Aquinas' family, was a uh, was a fairly well-to-do family, a noble family, but a minor nobility. And at that time, having an abbey. Uh, it's very sort of like having a, it's a it was more of a benefice, you know, was having an abbey was an important thing, it was an important post to have. In fact, it was sometimes even possible they weren't technically a Benedictine, and you could still be abbot of a place like Monte Cassino, the mother, the mother monastery of all Benedictines. Right. It was an important position in the world, at the, in the medieval world that was of great importance to be the abbot of an important monastery like Monte Cassino. And Thomas's uncle was in that position, and his family thought that one day that would be a good position for Thomas Aquinas. So 
They encouraged that. So they encouraged him to begin his studies there at the age of five. That's right, at five. So they sent him off at five to start studying in Monte Cassino. And at the age of five, his masters there among the Benedictine monks were astounded at him. They were astounded at his learning, astounded especially at his questions. He would go around. He would never cease to ask the question, we are told, quid est Deus? What is God? He would go around asking this question. He'd say, what is God? Well, what an inquisitive mind for a five-year-old, right? So he would ask very probing questions. And the course of his studies already among them was such that, that after a short time, we're not sure how long, but here on the timeline I put nine years, but it may have been less than that. It may have even been like five or six years. But, so he was still quite young when he was sent to the University of Naples. The Benedictine said, I'm sorry, but he's simply, he's simply too smart. We, this, this formation he's receiving here, it's not systematic enough. We really need to send him to university. So off he went. Off he went to university while a young teenager. And then pursued the course of study, which everyone did in those days in the 13th century, the trivium and the quadrivium. So you've probably heard of those terms, perhaps. So you have the first the three-parter, then the four-parter, right? So the three-parter, the trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Right? Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Training the mind and then training the use of the tongue with regard to the mind. Um, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. That's the foundation. Then after that, the quadrivium. Music, mathematics, geometry, and astronomy. So this was the course of study then he pursued at the University of Naples. And up until now, his family's still very happy with him. So all's going very well, going to be ready for his appointment as the abbot of Monte Cassino. Who knows what else might happen to him one day. Maybe he could even become Archbishop of Naples. Everything's going very well, except that Thomas comes into contact with a very new young order founded by St. Dominic, really just a generation before, the Dominicans. So the Dominicans, the followers of St. Dominic, which for a very long time, I don't know if it was already at that time, it may have been, but they were already, already the butt of a, of a bad Latin joke, because if you know your Latin well, you know, Dominican, right, is... Normally, we conjugate that in the second excuse me, we decline that in the second declension to the Dominicani, right? The followers of St. Dominic, Dominicani, where they would make a Latin joke and they call them the Dominicanes. They'd make it a third declension, which changes the meaning entirely. The Dominicanes means the dogs of the Lord. So <laughs> they would call them the dogs of the Lord so to make fun of them. And indeed, because they were a new sort of thing, along with the Franciscans, they were a mendicant order. They were a begging order. Now, theoretically, uh, Benedictines also were supposed to be practicing poverty, but they didn't go around begging. And they ran monasteries that were self-sufficient, and indeed, the monasteries themselves, because of their control of land and properties and their influence in the world, were, in a worldly sense, could be quite wealthy, even though individual Benedictines were, were supposed to be living poverty. It wasn't at all the same as these new orders that were mendicant, that is, they were begging. They were begging orders, and they went around for their sustenance by begging for what they needed. 
And Thomas was very much attracted to this new order of St. Dominic, which had been founded specifically as a begging order, but to go around exterminating heresy by expounding the faith. They were to lead a life of prayer and then to hand on what they obtained, the wisdom they obtained through prayer. So contemplari et contemplata tradere, to contemplate and then to hand down what has been contemplated. So that twofold thing, yes, a life of, of, of silent prayer and contemplation, but then the fruits of that is that we preach, especially so the order of preachers, that they would preach the, the wisdom that they obtained through prayer and study. And this appealed very much to, to our dear Thomas. And so already, by about the year 1243, maybe a bit earlier, he received the habit of the Order of St. Dominic in, May, in Naples. And he knew, and the Dominicans knew, that his family would be outraged by this. They would be so disappointed and so upset that they immediately sent him on the way to Rome. They said, well, just go to, go to Rome right away. You can st stay in our house there, and then you'll be safe, because if we if we let you stay around here, your parents will, will they'll never let you live, they'll never let you embrace this life. So, so he set out for Rome, but no, not his parents, his family was too clever for him. Anyway, his brothers apprehended him on the way to Rome, and they imprisoned him in one of their houses, imprisoned one of the family castles, and tried everything they could to dissuade him from continuing on this course. Remember, now he's still just a teenager, really. You know, he's very, very young. And, and they do everything they can to dissuade him, first by argument, uh, by just the torture of being imprisoned there, and at first not even being allowed anything to read. Right? And then finally, by his brothers sending a woman of ill repute to tempt his virtue, in hope that at the very least to be false from grace and he sins, then he'll certainly give up that vocation. Right? So, they even go so far as to, as to do that, and then there's the famous painting by Velasquez, we've perhaps seen, I couldn't bring it with me this time, but uh, where you have the, the depiction of that, of when he takes a firebrand from the fireplace and he drives the woman out, and then it is told to us that then angels descended and bestowed upon him a girdle from heaven so that he would be forever protected against any movement against chastity. And that's, that was the reward he received for resisting the, this temptation. After, now, after this point, his family relents a little bit, and they allow him at least things to read. So, so you can have, we'll give you some, some reading material now. And so for him, that was easy. He knew what he wanted right away. He said, oh, it's easy. I want the Bible. I want Aristotle's metaphysics, and I want the sentences of Peter Lombard. So boom, of course, it's on everybody's top reading list, right? So he got those. We'll get to Peter Lombard in a minute, why that's so important. But the, the Bible, yes, you understand, but the metaphysics of Aristotle, yes, that too. So he already, already seeing the importance of <clears throat> this philosopher that's come on the scene in the Western world again. And so he's able to read these books. And finally, after probably a good two years of in, imprisonment, he is allowed to escape. So his family actually doesn't want to release him, but they just allow him to escape. So let him sort of work it so that it, he basically goes out, he's lowered out of the window, and he leaves, and they know about it. He's lowered out in a basket, and the Dominicans pick him up, and, and then he's free. So he makes an escape, but the family knows about it, and, then, and they don't resist it. 
And at that point, now even the Pope himself will, will intervene, Innocent IV, and he will say, no more interfering with his vocation. Just leave him alone. And the Dominicans have him now, and they couldn't be more pleased. They say that the time, the two years he spent in prison were not wasted. On the contrary, he studied so much that he's basically already com completed his studium generale. He's already ready, he's already ready for <clears throat> higher studies. So now he goes to Cologne and studies under the great Albert. So Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great, and that becomes his great master, Albert. So he studies in Cologne under him, and Albertus Magnus, who's also very much uh, attracted to the writings of Aristotle, who's now really coming on the scene here. So thanks to some increased contact with the Eastern world, as you, you probably know that in the Western world, for the most part, the knowledge of Greek had been lost. People weren't reading the Greek philosophers in Greek. So very, very little survived from the ancient world. And they weren't able to read the ancient philosophers in their original language, and they, very few were even available in Latin. Well, thanks to a little more contact with the East, uh, two, two avenues there. One was the fact that uh, one was uh, Muslim invasions of, of the West, uh, and some of the Muslims were well-read in the Greek philosophers, especially Aristotle, and then also the contact with Constantinople, which had happened a century earlier from the sacking of Constantinople. So when Constantinople had been sacked by the Crusaders, very unfortunate incident. However, it did open up some contact with East and West, and a lot of stuff came back from Constantinople. Lots of relics of saints and other things all came into, into the West for that. And some, some Greek works were recovered and were translated then into Latin. And so at this time, Aristotle's really hot off the presses in Latin in the Western world. And so people are reading him, especially Albert the Great and his student, Thomas Aquinas. So it's at 1250 then that in Cologne, Thomas will be ordained a priest. And then shortly afterward, he'll be appointed a bachelor. That is, a bachelor is not what we mean now. A bachelor is not just someone who didn't get married. And it means someone who is in charge of a program of study. So he's the sub-regent of the Dominican Studium in Paris. And it's at this point now that he continues his study of Peter Lombard and starts to comment his sentences. Why is this important? Well, we're not going to read Peter Lombard together today, but it's important to understand that at this time in the Western world, anyone who was a good thinker or writer had to begin his career by commenting on the sentences of Peter Lombard, someone who had written a couple generations earlier, was the first systematic theologian of, of the Middle Ages, who presented the whole faith, all revealed truth, everything we derive from scripture and tradition in a very systematic way in a series of books. <clears throat> And so Thomas begins to comment these sentences, and that's his first great theological work, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And we'll see how he rearranges, uh, rethinks a lot of what Peter Lombard did. <clears throat> after, after some political strife here, with uh, some strong resistance in the University of Paris at first to the idea of any of these begging orders for so the Franciscans and the Dominicans uh, obtaining doctorates, there was some strong resistance to that at first, but this effort finally failed, and they were allowed to move forward with this, and so two great candidates will finally be promoted to the doctorate in 1257, on the same day where, and there's that famous scene where 
St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas, right? So St. Bonaventure, the great Franciscan, and St. Thomas, the great Dominican. He made doctor on the same day. <clears throat> and his doctoral defense, if I recall correctly, his doctoral defense comes from Psalm uh, 103, Regans Montes de Superibus Suis, so thou, thou dost rain down dew from the tops of the mountains, and he speaks about the kingship of Christ there in his doctoral thesis. It's what he defends on that day. And so he will be awarded the doctorate along with St. Bonaventure. And supposedly when they show up for the doctorate, they keep going like this, like, no, you, no, you, no, you. And they go back and forth, no, please, after me. And it was after you. So, right. so any rate, they both get their doctorate at the same time. They're very, very close friends always. And now he continues his, his program of teaching around Europe, teaching and preaching traveling all around Europe, do this and then. And, we, and there are quite a few of his sermons that remain that we have uh, in written form. And Pope Clement IV in 1265 will want to make him Archbishop of Naples. So it seems all will live happily ever after all. You know, after everything, his family will not be disappointed. They get what they want. They, they finally let him go and, and pursue the life of a, of a mendicant. And now everything's going to turn around, and he's going to become Archbishop of Naples, and they'll have all the honors they wished after all. No, no. Thomas will beg the Pope, please don't make the Archbishop. Right. It'll be similar in the life of St. Bonaventure. He, too, will, will, will really beg not to be made a bishop, but he will be made one at the, at the last moment. Uh, but then he won't live long. He'll only live briefly afterwards. And, so Thomas will, will beg not to be made the archbishop, just as he wants to remain as a Dominican. And, and the pope will relent, and he'll let him remain as a Dominican. If he hadn't done that, if he had accepted to be archbishop, it is really quite certain that if he had taken on all the worldly duties of an archbishop, uh, he certainly would not have written the Summa. So he would not have written the Summa Theologiae, his greatest work. So the Summa of Theology, the greatest work written by St. Thomas, would not have been written if he had accepted this. So. And it's thanks to this refusal, which the Pope agreed to, that he was able to write this. And then he begins writing it at this time, and he'll write it all the way until his death. He'll continue to write other works as well, but he'll start to experience more and more often great ecstasies and apparitions of our Lord. So the famous scene that and you can still visit if you go to Naples, if you go to, to visit our sisters there at the convent of St. Thomas Aquinas, and you can just go downtown, and you can still visit the convent where St. Thomas lived, and you can visit there and, and see the crucifix where, where our Lord, out of which our Lord spoke to St. Thomas, especially after he had written the section of the Summa on the Blessed Eucharist, and when he had finished, our Lord spoke to him from the crucifix and said, Thou hast written well of me, Thomas, what reward wouldst thou have? To which he replied, Only thyself, Lord. And ecstasies began to be longer and longer. And finally, on December 6, 1273, he experiences especially long ecstasy at Mass and then laid down his pen forever. He said, all that I have written now seems as nothing compared to what I have seen. And so he will no longer write. Nevertheless, he will still be very much in demand for his services, and especially now with another ecumenical council coming up in 1274. At the end of 1273, the Pope will inform St. Thomas that I need you. I need you at the Second Council of Lyon. 
your, especially your work, your treatise against the errors of, of the Greeks uh, is very important. Now we, we need you there at the council. Uh, it's a, a supremely important because one of the works of the council will be to attempt reunion with, with the East. And Thomas is already very ill at this point, but he tries to obey. So in the middle, in the midwinter, he sets out on foot for France. Oh, oh he sets out on foot. So don't, don't, you know, just because he was a man of great stature, right, doesn't, don't think that he wasn't a, quite a vigorous fellow. He was. <clears throat> so he sets out on foot, and he doesn't make it too far. He, he falls, and then he's picked up. And he ends up being taken to a Cistercian monastery, so strict observance Benedictines. And they will beg him to write one last thing. So on his deathbed, he'll write one last thing, which is a commentary on the Canticle of Canticles. And that'll be the very last thing he writes. And the final sacraments, the last sacraments are brought to him. And he made the following act of faith on his deathbed. If in this world there be any knowledge of this sacrament stronger than that of faith, I wish now to use it in affirming that I firmly believe and know as certain that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, Son of God and Son of the Virgin Mary, is in this sacrament. I receive thee the price of my redemption, for whose love I have watched, studied, and labored. Thee have I preached, thee have I taught. Never have I said anything against thee. If anything was not well said, that is to be attributed to my ignorance. Neither do I wish to be obstinate in my opinions, but if I have written anything erroneous concerning this sacrament or other matters, I submit all to the judgment and correction of the Holy Roman Church, in whose obedience I now pass from this life. And so he died on March 7th, which we keep as his feast day. And miracles began immediately to multiply. And so he will be canonized not long after, only a generation later, by one of the Avignon popes, by John XXII. And he will be declared, I didn't quite write it in there, actually, but after that it will be in, in, 15, in 1567, one of the first things that Pius V will do, in the 1567 he will declare him a doctor of the church. And then in 1570, as I wrote for you there, the, the Pian edition, the Ditsia Piana, the first edition of the complete works of St. Thomas will be published by order of Pope St. Pius the fifth. <clears throat> Let us speak then a little bit about who this person is. If we turn the, the page there and examine some of his works. I hope this is, is helpful to you to have this little map at least of his works. It may seem so daunting to consider ever reading any of St. Thomas Aquinas. But if we map it out a little bit, we'll see that it's, it is possible to, to undertake a study of him, even though you may not read all of his works before your death. So this is the very copious output of the man who was called, when he was at study, when he was in his school years, was called the dumb ox. Right? He was called the dumb ox because he was very, very quiet. He was very quiet. He was not a great uh, conversationalist at table or anything like that. He would drift off and always be thinking, thinking, thinking. This is known because he was invited. He was the dinner guest at many famous tables. He was a contemporary, for instance, of King St. Louis IX. Oh, and so he, he knew him well. He, did, he had St. Thomas at his table. And even there were times, too, where 
he just would drift off, and then finally, you know, he would offer him food and drink and things that he was just so lost in, in thought. He said, well, how about some pen and paper here? I'll just offer you that, okay? <laughs> Good. <laughs> That'll make you happy. <laughs> so, so, but his teacher, Albert the Great, said, we call this man a dumb ox, but his bellowing and doctrine will one day resound throughout the world. And that is what you find here. So this, this list of his works is not a complete list. It's, I wanted to list for you at least the most important works, and it's not strictly chronological either. It's a little bit, but, but I rearranged it so that it would be easier to retain uh, these different things. So, and I've woven together th things that are philosophical and things that are theological, because sometimes they cross over anyway. So what I out, point out first is this. So the commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard. Now, what's interesting about the sentences of Peter Lombard is this is the first great work of theology of the Middle Ages, where he presents everything in a very lengthy work. And in this work of Peter Lombard, he presents all of our faith, everything, all revealed truth that we are to consider. He has a very interesting division, one that St. Thomas will not use. He'll reject that and come up with a different division. Uh, he divides up all of theology into things that we enjoy, things that we use, and then things that we enjoy and we use. So you say, well, the first thing would be God. That's one, we're called one day to enjoy God's existence as present, right? So that's the first thing. Then things that we use, which is everything here below, you know, the created world, and then also uh, that leads into questions of virtue and sin. And then finally, things that we enjoy and we use, which is Christ among us, right? Christ among us, God become man and the sacraments and such. So anyway, though, it's not, uh, Thomas won't look at it quite the same way, but, but the division will, in some degrees, will, will, with some degree, will stick. So we'll, we'll say more about that in a moment. In the meantime, I'll point out another one there early on. So one, it's one of his early works, but one that's very important. You might not see it at first glance. It's not one that you're likely to, to look up right away and trying to read about. The commentary on Boethius' book on the Trinity. So I'll do my best to explain this. But this is a very important work. In fact, this is a very important work for our formation in Grichiliano. In Grichiliano, we read this work very early on. Very, very important for the training of the mind. Now, you may know who Boethius is. Anyone ever heard of Boethius? Raise your hand. No? Okay, so, so Boethius, one of, the most, one of the most important authors of late antiquity, uh, so he's, he's very important for a lot of the literature that will come later. You know, if you read Dante, uh, Boethius is very important for him. Uh, so his most, his most famous work is The Consolation of Philosophy. The Consolation of Philosophy, a very beautiful work of the ancient world. So a work of late antiquity. And, and Boethius, was a, uh, Boethius was certainly a Christian. He was maybe even a martyr. Uh, we can't quite prove it if he was just killed for political intrigue or if he was actually killed for his faith. So he's not, he's not honored uh, as a saint. However, he may be. He may be a, a martyr. But at any rate, he also wrote a work on the Trinity. But that's actually the, one of the main reasons for reading this and reading Thomas's commentary on this is that the, the beginning of his commentary, the opening questions, deal with how the human mind works. So it, that's why that, that little work there is very, very precious, because there we really encounter young Thomas at work here and how we present, the, how we put Aristotle to work 
in, in helping us to think. Because this is where we, we first learn about what's called abstraction. And this will come up this afternoon when we talk more about specific principles of, of Thomism and how we use abstraction. So just to bring it up now briefly, and then we'll bring it up again, because it's a tough point, is that <clears throat> what we learn here from St. Thomas commenting on Boethius, who certainly knew his Aristotle as well, is that how do we get information? Well, for St. Thomas, he follows Aristotle, and so it's very, very important. It's something, it's a simple common sense principle, one that in fact most moderns are helpless to dispute, they won't even try to dispute, is that where do we get, where do we get all our knowledge? We get all our knowledge through our five senses. It's the only way we get knowledge. Everything we get through our five senses. <clears throat> Everything we get through our five senses, that's when it comes in, but what happens? If we look at the, if we look at the chart of the, of the soul, if we look at those bubbles, well, what is that if not, it's simply the presentation of the soul given to us by Aristotle, which St. Thomas uses. And what happens there in the human soul? Well, we take in all of reality, everything around us, the real world comes to us through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. But what Thomas tells us, though, is that in order to be a human being, to, to do anything, you, you, you have to take, what makes you human is the fact that you go beyond that. You, you take in stuff through your senses, but then you abstract. You abstract depending on what it is. So you can abstract, at least you can very, very much, you can see, I can see, for instance, this chair and that chair, and I can look at that and say, a chair, <laughs> All right? a chair. And I can have this idea of what a chair is. It's a universal concept. Only a human being can do that. A dog doesn't look at a chair, he just looks, there's this and that. That's the, as far as a dog can get, right? It's not going to be able to go beyond that. And so I see, we actually have a whole bunch of these things in here that are all the same thing. They're all chairs, right? So these universal concepts, that's the most basic thing. But we can go beyond that too. So we could even go, so you could go on, for instance, like table. Okay, table, we could go beyond that. If we follow the teaching of Aristotle, we say, now how does the mind work? We go beyond that. What's even beyond this? We could even go beyond this next level of abstraction, just beyond singularities and just saying this, that, this, no, table, okay? What's beyond that? Look at me, I'm looking, rectangle, right? Rectangle, well, what's that? So that's even more abstract because now you did away with the need for wood or anything like that. And in fact, in Greek, the word for wood is the same as the word for, word for matter. So you see, do away with the material stuff and say, no, I can, I can have that. That's real in my mind. I can picture that. I can picture a rectangle without having to look, without having to picture wood or metal or plastic or anything else. I can think rectangle, right? I can do that, right? I can do that, right? But then there are things that go even beyond that, right? That go beyond even thinking of a rectangle. There's other concepts it's what? Like, imagine even beyond that, it's like strength, right? Firmness, right? And that's an even one, even beyond that. So you said there's the concepts we can even go beyond that and, and think of that. And then you start to touch on things that, wow, you get so far in your powers of abstraction that you can even begin to think about the uncreated world that is about God 
himself. So all that in that little book there, which we all remember from our seminary days, of this commentary on, on the De Trinitate of Boethius, where we first learned about how the mind works. So that's a young, vigorous Thomas teaching us that for the first time. Also, fairly early on then in his intellectual career, then we have another very vigorous work, which is, in case you didn't know, it's his great work of apologetics, his great work of the defense of the faith. His great work of the defense of the faith, Summa Contra Gentiles. There's always a corny joke we make in, in seminary that because in, in French, gentil just means nice. So, I mean, it's, it's like, why did he write a summa against the nice people? But, right? <laughs> but this is his great, what is it against? So it's against the errors of the heathen, against the errors of the pagans. Thomas presents a defense of the faith. So it's going to be much different from something like the Summa Theologica because here is a, here's a defense rather than a, a, a Q&A thing that he does with the Summa and some other works. This is an apologetical work. Not, you know, still presented in a more scientific way than, than the truly rhetorical work like something like of St. Francis de Sales, like the Catholic controversy, which is much more on the level of, of rhetoric. But that, another early work there. And then another, another one very, very important, as I said, because it will be, he will be cited as an authority later, and that's why the Pope will want him to come to the Second Council of Lyon. The contra erroris Greekorum, so against the error of the Greeks, not, against, not the Greek pagans, but against the errors of the Greek schismatics, that is, and especially in this ongoing debate that's going on throughout all of the Middle Ages on the Trinity, and one of the main points of contention, the reason why the Greeks refuse to reunite with, with the West. Another thing, which is here, there's no question, you all can know this great work of St. Thomas. You all can know this great work of his. That is the Mass, the Office of the Feast of Corpus Christi. Right, so coming up now in June, we'll be able to celebrate the Feast of Corpus Christi, which was which was instituted when St. Thomas was a young man, and he was commissioned to compose the Mass in the office for it. So all those beautiful hymns we know, everything that we use for adoration, for benediction, adoro te devote, tanto mergo, all these things, these are from St. Thomas Aquinas. And if you really want a great summary of everything he teaches in the Summa about the Blessed Eucharist, perhaps his most beautiful treatise in all of the Summa, on the, on the Holy Eucharist, you can simply read and meditate upon the sequence of the Mass of Corpus Christi, the Laudation Salvatorum. So you, verse after verse after verse, you find it's, it's, so it sums up all the articles in the Summa regarding the Blessed Eucharist. So a glorious sequence, which is for us always to, to, to meditate upon. We arrive then at his greatest work of all, the Summa Theologica or the Summa Theologiae. So the summary of theology. So what did I tell you earlier? I said that the, the Summa was sort of a reworking of the sentences of Peter Lombard. He took that structure, but he's going to rename it. He's going to rework it. And it's going to be the basis, nevertheless, of what he's going to do now 
in presenting his own great massive work of theology, which he'll never quite complete. He'll keep writing it all the way till his death, and then he'll have his ecstasy and he'll stop writing, and he won't quite finish. But the division is a very important thing to remember. So I was remember too. I mean, I'm, maybe some of you. Who's ever tried to read any part of the Summa? Okay, so a few. Good. So I didn't bring mine along. It's kind of heavy. So I mean, I have just the one volume one. It's really nice. It's super super thin paper. But it was the one I used all through seminary. Uh, I love that one a lot. And so you know, there's over three thousand articles, right? Over three thousand articles in the Summa. And so I did have a. One time I had a plan for doing it. I was going to do it. I was going to read the whole thing just by reading an article a day. So an article a day in about 10 years, you can read the whole thing. So I thought about it. I, thought maybe I never did it. I never, I never managed to do it that way. So, I mean, in seminary, we'll read through whole treatises together, but we won't just go article by article. So I never managed to do that. And I did encounter once, but I can never find this work again. But the seminarian once had a very learned work by a, by a Dominican who sort of completed the Laodicean. So he wrote a Laodicean, he wrote a hymn that was just every article of the Summa. So it was like a Laodicean that just went on and on and on for thousands of verses where he put the whole Summa in, in poetic form in Latin. And I never was able to encounter this book again, but if we could ever find it, it would be very interesting. Maybe someone listening to this video will, will, will hear in Lachapon or maybe be that guy. He'll say, yeah, I wrote that, and he'll give me a copy. But very interesting, but the problem is, okay, evidently today we're not going to do the 10-year the plan for, for reading through the Summa, but there's also the 10-second plan for going through the Summa, which also works very well. So I reminded you that Peter Lombard had, had a three-parter, right, for the, the sentences. Well, Thomas likes that very well, but he's not going to do it the same way. So he's going to have three parts also. So three parts to the Summa. Yeah, the second part is also divided into two, but anyway, it's still, it's three parts. And so it's easy to remember his three-parter. How will he do it? He'll do it, what? God, the source of all things. All right. Second part, God, the goal of all things. Third part, God, the way to the goal. So God, the source of all things, God, the goal of all things, God, the way to the goal. So what will that mean? It will be God, the first part will be about God, his existence, and then about creation. The second part will be the goal, God, the goal, which will be start with the consideration of what is happiness. What is happiness? What is beatitude? And then will be all about sin and the virtue, so about virtue and vice. And then the third part, God the way. And how is God the way? So God is the source of man. God is the goal of man. And then God will become man to become the way to the goal. So that's the third part. The third part is about Christ and his sacraments. So that will be the great division. I don't know if that took 10 seconds or not. Probably not a little longer, but so at any rate. But the... <clears throat> That will be the great division that St. Thomas will use. And it's important because later divisions of theology that you may have heard about are, are not wrong. They're, they can be useful to consider, but it's important to remember that Thomas doesn't divide that way. So even if you have, for instance, a, a good, uh, if you have a good catechism, for instance, if you have like the big brown My Catholic Faith, right? So what does it say? It's, a, it's divided up into what to believe, how to act, how to pray. Well, that's a very common 
way to divide up theology, in fact. It's the way in a university setting today, in a, in a seminary that uh, you, you would traditionally divide up. You'd say, well, yeah, there's different types of theology. There's dogmatic theology, there's moral theology, and there's mystical theology. So, and that corresponds to those three things, is what I said, what, what to believe. So our beliefs, dogma, that's dogmatic theology, the articles of faith. Then how to act, right? how to act, well, moral theology. So ethics, but especially in light of the gospel. And then mystical theology, how to pray. So all, all the, different, the different states of life, the different methods of prayer, the different stages of the spiritual life. All these things are part of mystical theology. But it's important to remember with St. Thomas, well, he doesn't quite divide up the Summa that way. It's true, the, other, the, the middle part is certainly a lot about morality. However, for him, how to, what to believe, how to act, and how to pray are always woven together. They're always woven together throughout the Summa. Throughout his teaching, they always go together because you, you always need them. They're interdependent. So even though for the purpose of study, it could be useful to divide them into three like that, for him, he, he always keeps them together. So they're always woven together. How we pray is always related to how we believe, and that's always related to how we act. These, these three are always interdependent, and so they are in, in the Summa. Good. So that's, that's his greatest work of all, Summa Theologiae. We'll just make some mention here of the other ones before we have our first break, and hopefully this will be a good preparation for what we talk about this afternoon. So then, after that, another, another book, which actually I think, uh, if you want a page-turner, I would say this one, you probably would, most people would find this pretty, uh, pretty much of a page-turner. You find it pretty fascinating. So, uh, so they, Regimini Principum, on the rule of princes, so on the rule of princes, which is very similar to his commentary on Aristotle's politics, but a very interesting work where he considers the different forms of government. And, and proposes some solutions there. So very, a very interesting work. I think you, you would enjoy reading that very much. Um, I actually myself don't have an English translation, but I, I'm, I know the English translations are available. So <clears throat> that one is very interesting because he does consider he considers questions that are very, of very great moment uh, to us. Where the in considering the, the model, considering God, considering the kingship of Christ, he says yes, of course. We must look at monarchy as the highest form of government. However, we, we cannot forget the effects of original sin. And then due to the effects of original sin, we must acknowledge that although the best form of government would be a monarchy, in reality, we need to make use of other forms of government as well, and that the best would probably be something of a mix. So that the mix, a, a system of government that had, that had, yes, the monarchical elements, but also the other forms. So the other form being an aristocracy, where, where a group of the best men, not just one man, uh, govern society. Or, and then even the democratic element, where there are those who are elected representatives of the people uh, to carry out the government. So in fact, if we use all three of these, then, then that probably makes for the best form of government in this very imperfect world of ours, where nothing will ever be a perfect government, but at least that system, yes, I dare even say it, checks and balances, because you're going to be saying, well, gee, that, does, that sounds kind of like our Constitution, right? I mean, it is. Well, our founding fathers certainly did know St. Thomas Aquinas. They knew, they knew Aristotle and they knew St. Thomas Aquinas, and so they, they, were, they were familiar with his, with his teachings on this, and so there are similarities. There are similarities between 
what he outlines there and our own system of government with the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. But I think that, that's a work you would find very interesting. Uh, some other here, I just mentioned them, that besides the Summa, he has other things that he brought out that at certain times, even though these things are also contained in the Summa, certain questions for specific discussion, questiones disputate, where's a list there of certain questions he considers in particular, although he considers them elsewhere as well. Then we move on to the commentaries on Aristotle. So it's thanks to these, although we will find this teaching all again in works like the Summa. We're not going in chronological order anymore here. The these commentaries are an important foundation for everything that will come later. It's thanks to St. Thomas and his commentaries on these works of Aristotle that really Aristotelian thought will make its way into the Western world in a way it never had before. And, and this system will really start to take root. <clears throat> so starting with commentaries on, on logic from Aristotle, on interpretation, posterior analytics, how the human mind works, which we already touched on briefly, but then the whole system of Aristotelian logic. Then a true study of psychology, which in its traditional Western definition, right, which is just the study of the soul. Study of the soul as the form of the body. Study of the soul as the form of the body, and then all these bubbles that we have here, which form the basis of the human act, form the basic of morality, which would be the subject of the ethics. So the ethics, closely related to the study of politics, and also metaphysics, which is a very difficult work. His commentary on the metaphysics is a difficult work, and one we, we labor through in our years of philosophy in seminary. But interesting that you see, you see a real union of these two great minds, of Aristotle and of St. Thomas. You hear what Aristotle, you see that St. Thomas really marvels at him as this pagan philosopher from 4th century BC. Uh, gets so, so close, it gets so close there when you consider what is metaphysics, it's what goes beyond the natural world, the study of existence itself, study of being itself. And you can tell that Aristotle himself starts to speak about that and he says nothing gives the human mind greater joy than to reflect on these highest things, the highest causings, to consider being itself. That's the highest thing we could possibly consider in the human mind. And he goes farther and farther until finally at the end of the metaphysics, he's, he's there. He's there, he's like just about, but he doesn't have revelation yet, but he starts to talk, it almost sounds like the Bible at the end when he talks about the existence of God, and it's just, he's, he's almost there, he's almost there, he's almost there, it's almost the same as Moses in the burning bush, it's almost I am who am, it's right there, right? And so, so the, that, that commentary, as difficult as it is to get through all of it, is truly a marvel. And then finally, one which I, I placed in here just to, to note because it, it gives you an insight also into St. Thomas's way of thinking. So on the heavens and the earth. Now you might think right away, and a lot of people do, they say, okay, well, here's one commentary we probably don't need to spend too much time on. I mean, after all, medievals didn't know anything about the way the heavens worked, right? They had no clue, right? They're still all lost the Ptolemaic model and everything. You know, it was the earth at the center and all that. They didn't know anything. So why would we... Why would we bother even with their study of the stars and all that? But you say, well, because of the principles there, that's why. Because the principles there, we, we find in there the astonishing passage where St. Thomas, after having considered the Ptolemaic model of the universe, which places the earth at the center, he, now medieval man he was, right? 
all toothless, right? Like all this, why all those manuscripts like that? You know, the manuscripts with it, like they only have like two teeth, buddy, right? So, right. So, this man of the dark ages, Saint Thomas. What will he say? He says, after having considered the Ptolemaic model of the universe, you know, Copernicus isn't that far off. Copernicus, the priest, right? Who will propose the not for the first time in the history of Western thought, but will bring back the ancient theory of the heliocentric universe, and which Thomas knows about, but he says, no, but right now, right now, based on what we know, this model of Ptolemy is the best. It's the best model we have. However, it is not faith. It's only a model. And he even says, there's no reason why someone in the future couldn't come up with a better model. So you see the great intellectual honesty of, of, of St. Thomas that you find in there. So that's why even, even a work like De Cello, like on the heavens, which you would think, well, it's just we've gone so far beyond that it's just nothing to share. It's a, it reminds of what, of what T.S. Eliot says at a certain point where he says, well, you know, we, we, we say, well, we're better than the ancients because we know so much more than them. He said, yes, well, they are that which we know. <laughs> so so it's, because, it's only because of standing on their shoulders, right? So, so much for the commentaries on Aristotle. Then, finally here, before we break, his commentaries on scripture, his commentaries on scripture. So I told you, I mentioned already the Canticle of Canticles, which he wrote on his deathbed, that commentary. Then we find his commentary on the Psalms, where he just goes through it, he just goes through it the way they are presented in the, in the breviary, in the, in the Roman breviary, the way they go through from the beginning of the week at Matins all the way to the end, and he just comments on, on all the Psalms, which is a very learned commentary. He brings in a lot. He brings in the fathers. He brings in uh, even the different versions of St. Jerome, uh, sometimes even as far as he could know, uh, the different readings from the Septuagint and from the Hebrew. So very important commentary, also for Prophet Isaiah, all these commentaries. But then you see, too, he at least, at least treats of one synoptic gospel and then the theological gospel, so St. Matthew and St. John. And then he commented all of the epistles of St. Paul. And then finally, very famous commentary he had, which is not his own, it's a, it's a golden chain, a catena aurea, where St. Thomas, and he's not the only one to do this, to, to make a catena was a common practice in the Middle Ages. It was a, a, a very good uh, work to do that many, many commentators did this, but his, is, uh, as far as the Gospels, is the most famous, where for all four Gospels, he weaves together the, comments of, the commentaries of the Fathers. So all the church fathers, he weaves them together one after another, so it's a constant chain. One says this, and then he has, and then the next one says this, and it goes through every passage of the gospel in this way. So it's still a very, very useful work. I certainly know plenty of priests who, who will use the Catena Aurea. If you're going to preach on Sunday, you want to preach a homily on the gospel, it's very useful just to open the Catena Aurea of St. Thomas. You, read, you have right there, you have the, the teachings of the fathers right away, because it's good to know. It's good to know what, what did all the fathers say about a particular passage. So supremely a supremely useful work. So now we've presented his life, we've presented his works, and then we'll be ready this afternoon, if we don't fall asleep, to consider Thomism itself and the, the system of thought and at least some very important principles that we should consider if we are all going to be good Thomists. We'll see you this afternoon.